Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. Welcome to another episode. I'd like to take a moment of gratitude for M, who left me a message on social media. M said, Loved your episode with Russell Colts. Thank you for your podcast and the loveliness you bring to the world of social media and beyond. Oh, thank you so much, M. That's such a beautiful comment. I really do appreciate when you take the time to comment and give feedback. It really helps me feel connected to you all. And it's really useful for knowing what you'd like to hear about on the podcast or who you would like to hear me interview. My next guest is the wonderful Michaela Thomas. Michaela is a clinical psychologist, couples therapist and author of the book The Lasting Connection on developing compassion for yourself and your partner. Michaela specialises in perfectionism, helping stressed, busy people find balance over burnout to follow their ambition without drowning in it. She currently runs a group coaching programme for ambitious women called Burn Bright. It is my pleasure to welcome Michaela onto the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode and find it helpful. Hey, Michaela. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really lovely to get the opportunity to chat with you. Thank you very much for having me. I feel like I'm already sort of greeted by a warm image of seeing you in your self-care club top there. So this is <laughs> yeah. going to be great. <laughs> Trying to stay warm. It's cold over here in Australia at the minute. So do you want to start with telling us a little bit about yourself and what your career as a helping professional has looked like? Sure. So I was born and raised in Sweden. Um, so I sort of lived, lived there in my, into my sort of early adulthood and I did my psychologist training there and my CBT training. And then I moved across to the UK in 2010. Um, I got a job in, in IAPT, improving access to psychological therapies. And at the time, I was really passionate about that in, in the incentive there, you know, with initiative, um, trying to kind of get into primary care psychology and in order to go across, I had to do another sort of round of CBT training because uh, obviously it's really hard to get your qualifications approved. Um, but eventually HCPC um, approved my psychologist uh, qualifications. So I am then qualified both as a CBT therapist and a psychologist in this country. Uh, I didn't get to use the fancy doctor's title. Unfortunately, that's sort of one of my little imposter syndrome, little shame things showing up sometimes that I can't say I'm a doctor. Um, slightly different academic systems. But um, yeah, so I worked in IAPT for seven years in London in two different services. And I had a lovely episode of burnout in each one. And we can, I'm sure we can touch upon that later on. So that meant that after the birth of my first child, I came off maternity leave, came back to work and with the intention to just hand in my notice and serve out my notice period, because I already knew that this is not sustainable. This is not yeah. a way I can continue to work whilst I also have these priorities of looking after a actually quite poorly child at the time. Yeah. So that yeah. sort of tapping into my values there, I then made Kind of a bit of a pivot. Um, I'd already been running my private practice for about three years at that point, but only one day a week, so it was very small. So I moved into a different role. I was heading up a um, staff clinic, CBT clinic for staff, um, healthcare professionals at a major London hospital. So I did that one day a week um, at the same time as serving out my notice period for IAPT. And um, I continued to stay there for another year, but again, I felt like 
the the bright mind that I have, and that triggers my self-criticism to say so, but I do have quite a bright mind that gets very bored if I don't don't get to implement yeah. my bright ideas. Um, and I have that as a theme from both working in IAPT and in the staff clinic that actually I was just sort of sat there. I had all of these ideas, but the wheels were turning too slowly that in the year I was there, even though I was hired to do things like start webinars, podcasts, starting to do sort of broader outreach, running workshops for staff. It took a year and I barely did anything because getting the approval from the powers to be takes so long. So the sort of self-practice, self-reflection groups I I wanted to run, all of these things that they were just quite blocked by the system. So eventually I just felt I want to go somewhere where I can make more impact. So I'd been growing my private practice more and more. I'd taken on a couple of associates and since 20, uh, early 2018, was it? Yeah, 2018, I have just been doing fully private practice. So that's about you know, yeah. four and a half years now that I've been doing that. Um, and then I've had another mat leave, which I'm slowly coming off now. Um, but yeah, there's a, I'm very multi-hyphenated. So since I feel like most of the things I feel proud of in terms of my career achievements have happened since I took my foot out of public sector healthcare. So I've published a book, I run a, you know, a very well appreciated podcast, I run corporate talks and uh, workshops, I'm a speaker, I, I run group coaching programs, I do one-to-one therapy, I have associates, I do supervision, I even do, um, I quite enjoy doing therapy for uh, psychologists and therapists, which is a bit of a niche in itself. So yeah, I do I do a lot of things, I'm very multi-hyphenated, and sometimes people ask me, what does that mean? Well, it just means that you are an author, hyphen, speaker, hyphen, podcaster, yeah. etc. And I'm multi-passionate and that makes me feel like I can thrive in my career. That's fantastic. So you've had some diversity in the things you were doing. It sounds like you realised that you needed that more of a sense of autonomy and being able to actually act on the things that you were thinking about doing rather than sitting around waiting for other people to tell you that you could do those things. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's Sometimes people say after they've been in private practice for a while um, that they are now sort of unemployable. They couldn't go back to being employed. And I think that's a not a nice way of saying that actually you've now stepped into your leadership. You now stepped yeah. into your, your power and your autonomy. And that wouldn't mean that you wouldn't be possible to be employed again, but it just means that you have had enough of of systems that are very slow um so that's probably where I am I'm not sure I would ever be employed again because I just love the freedom and the flexibility of what I do yeah I think you're right it's not that you're not employable it's that perhaps you wouldn't want to actually be in those confines of being employed again um and then maybe some people would as well it's um Mm. it's each for their own you never know you never know how you pivot and what life brings you yeah so you recently authored The Lasting Connection, the compassion-focused book for couples. Congratulations on that. And, it, and I say recently, but with COVID, I, I like lots of people, I'm in this time warp of like, actually, it probably was quite a while ago now, was it? <laughs> it was February 2021, yeah. <laughs> right, so it's, yeah, <laughs> still fairly recent. And a lot of your work is focused on relationships. So I'm interested to hear about what you've noticed about how our work as helping professionals can impact our relationships and your thoughts on what we can do to nurture and protect the important relationships that we've got in our lives, whilst often working in these very demanding helping professional roles? Mm, It's a really multi-layered question, isn't it? There's one aspect is the impact on our own well-being, I think, from doing the work that we do, you know, facing everything from poverty to suicide to just people struggling I mean the the empathy or compassion fatigue that that may bring can be vast it can be really difficult to spend a a full day at work holding space for others and then come home and feel like I've got no space left for anyone else in my family the ones who I feel are actually closest to my heart I don't have capacity uh, or bandwidth to listen to another person Um, I think my husband would probably say that if he was here that I would be you know telling a lot more about my day than I listen to his day because I've not I've not had anyone listen to me all day I've just been making space for others so I think that's one that thing there about the sort of the capacity um yeah. uh, capacity to care 
capacity to listen, capacity to to be with. Sometimes I, you know, it depends on how extroverted versus introverted you are, where you are on that spectrum. You might feel like you've completely drained your batteries uh, at work mm-hmm. by providing care and listening for others. You might find that you then have been so lonely all day, uh, as obviously, especially private practitioners are, but often people in, say, IAPT would sit alone in GP surgeries um, and not talk to another colleague for for a couple of days. So it depends on how much you have a need to then reconnect when you come home. Do you feel like I want to talk or I want to be alone? And I guess we're going to talk about that a lot today that actually comes back to then Mm self-compassion. Having the self-awareness to tune inwards and think, what do I need to be the kind of partner I want to be? Do I need five minutes to myself before the kids jump on me? Do I need to have, you know, if, if I work from home, like, like I do, do I need to have a, uh, a proper break, you know, walk around the block, you know, listen to, you know, some music? What do I need before I reconnect with the people who matter the most to me so that I haven't completely drained my batteries at work, doing the work that we do, and then I've got nothing left to give. And then I feel like yeah. this is not the version of me that I want to be, you know, shouting mum, I call it sometimes shouting mom comes out when um, when I'm out of capacity and, yeah. and it's not who I want to be. So there's that level. Um, and I think there's, there's other layers to it as well, which is sort of what does it mean to be a therapist and live in an intimate relationship with another person when we have so much knowledge about things that the general public don't know? You know, are we supposed to use the same active listening in our relationship that we do at work? Does that then feel like I'm constantly living at work? Can we allow us the the same imperfections um, uh, and lack of skills at times as the general public have? You know, saying the wrong thing, not listening, scrolling on your phone when your partner is talking. We will all do these things, even though we know better. And that, I think, can be a trap of self-criticism otherwise. That like, well, I know how to do active listening or I know how to reflect properly I know how to validate or why am I not mindfully present in this conversation Mm. because I know better and that cannot be a sort of a um, you know a shit stick to beat yourself with yeah so so I think that's that's another layer to it but I find that it's a double-edged sword being a therapist or psychologist or counselor whatever it might be that you do essentially sort of helping other people there's a double-edged sword with that because you do have an awareness um, that you bring as a richness to that relationship. I certainly would say that my husband is a lot more aware of things like mental load. Uh, we are a lot more even and equal than any of my friends uh, I see in their relationships because he's married to a couple's therapist. Um, but he's also married to a couple's therapist. So that is <laughs> the downside of that is that, you know, we have very lengthy conversations that he would probably just like, could you not write it on a postcard? Um, so sometimes <laughs> in arguments, um, I might once I even said, "Have you even read my book?" Because I know that obviously he's he's read every chapter to kind of give edit suggestions. And then he goes, "Well, have you?" <laughs> and it's a very fair point actually. Um, when I don't practice what I preach, when I don't use my skills, because we as humans all do that, we all drift away from acting effectively at times. Uh, so again, oh. another big dollop of self-compassion uh, for how you can't act in line with your yeah. therapist values and beliefs all the time. Yeah. And your partner is also not a therapist. So if you get cross at them not validating you properly or like, why did you say that? Like, they're not therapists. You didn't marry a therapist. Um, and some some therapists do marry other therapists. And I, I, I don't know, I would fear for what their Friday night conversations look like, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So, yeah, those are sort of my thoughts around the, the layers, but there's there's so much more depth to that question, I suppose. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's that acknowledging that we're human first, isn't it? Of course we're going to err off moving away from the skills that we know because we are human and it's important that we do turn off the being a therapist as well and actually allow ourselves to just be human. I, as you were talking as well, I was thinking about, you know, um, you're saying about capacity and people who perhaps live alone don't have partners don't have children and the risk there could be of self-isolating because you've had such a busy time and that even though you might you know part of you might really want to go and connect with other people there's Mm -hmm. just this sense of like I just can't listen to anyone else 
So I think there's real mm. things that we have to be aware of, regardless of our sort of living situation, that mm. can impact so much, can't it, on the relationships we have with other people. It really can, because there's also that sense of how other people bring material to us. You know, what do they bring to the conversation with us when they know what we do? I'm sure you've experienced this at some point during your career of the people wanting a free ride, almost like a bit of free therapy, uh, or people doing the polar opposite, not daring to speak to you or open up to you because of fear of judgment or that you're going to, quote unquote, sort of uh, read their mind um, and or analyze them. Uh, I'm sure this is something that's happened to most therapists that they've gone into mm you know, a party and people will find out what you do and they go like, oh, are you like, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? Um, and that it's, it's a funny joke at a party, but it has a depth to it, which is yeah. I don't just bring Michaela as a human being to this conversation. I bring that hat and I try to take it off, but other people might think I'm still wearing it and that can make yeah. it harder for them to talk to me or they get annoyed when they don't get the ideal response. And obviously yeah. I work with a lot with perfectionism, as you know, and that means that we might have very unrealistic standards for ourselves and others. Um, and in those conversa- conversations with friends, family, partners, they might also have unrealistic expectations of you acting in the ideal way every single time when they know what you do for a living. And we just don't. I mean, psychologists flip their lid with their kids too. Um, I've had that, you know, when I ran a compassion focused group once, um, one of the members in the group, I also sort of, because it's a small town I live in, uh, we also sort of knew each other from from other settings, you know, where our children were were in sort of, and she once saw me trying to wrangle my child into the pushchair and she's like, I was so lovely to see you do that, you know, and it like, like, like me. And that yeah. you were like me. I'm like, yes, of course I am like you. I'm yeah. a human too. Um, uh, so I touched upon it in the next compassion group that yes, I do lose my patience. Yes, I do lose my shit, as she's referred to it. And it's that's normal. And even yeah. therapists lose their shit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Human first. Mm-hmm. So another area you focus on is high achieving and high striving individuals. And I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to this. I don't think you get through the degree and all the training without on some level being a high achieving high striving individual so I think mm-hmm. there's lots of them in the profession where do you see the most impacts in this regard I definitely see because I, I like I said earlier I do therapy for psychologists and therapists as well because I love having people sit in that chair um, and join that journey with me and we can we can know all the lingo but know that that doesn't mean that you can do all the work it's just actually you still need to be guided by someone else to sort of see what you don't see and when I do therapy for psychologists I see that there's there's a lot of that sense of fear of doing the wrong thing um you know the the good old imposter syndrome everyone else is better than I am I'm going to be found out I don't know enough there's a huge amount of um sort of fear of of malpractice um I'm going to be sued I'm going to be struck off um yeah there's the, and a lot of that is obviously sort of the the self-critical thinking patterns that they come into um, their workplace with also leads them to behavior there's there's often a sense of overchecking their work maybe being overzealous about risk management um, sitting with their notes for a million years I mean I'm exaggerating but taking maybe one hour extra per day to do long notes that you could shave off so there's a fear of cutting corners uh, taking yeah. shortcuts there's a real fear of doing good enough because good enough yeah. feels like it's substandard good enough feels like it's below average um, and that might mean that that leads into a, again, lack of capacity and even burnout, that when we constantly go above and beyond, we have a real risk of burning out in the process. The, the real trick is knowing when and where do I go above, above and beyond because it fits with my values to do so, so that yeah. I can cut some corners and do good enough everywhere else. Yeah, yeah, I certainly see that in the work I do with um other helping professionals is this sense of their notes having to be perfect and lot and and mm-hmm. overdoing that sort of stuff and spending a lot of extra time which oftentimes will encroach on going home and being able to yes. be with family or friends or 
engaging in social activities or just other extracurricular activities that they've got. So it really is quite a common problem, isn't it? It really is. And I, I can't quote where I read this because it's something I've sort of learned about 15 years ago or something, but it stuck with me um, because it was relevant to my own journey as well. And I learned once that psychologists have two very kind of common schemas, um, and that is self-sacrifice and perfectionism. That, like you said, a lot of people listening would recognise that in themselves. Yeah. And it's almost it's almost like you have to be, when you think about the UK system of getting into doctoral training, you know, the amount of preparation to do the interviews, and you, almost like you have to be perfect or you won't, or you won't make it. So then that says being perfect is then a, a protective mechanism against failure. Um, and it's almost like a protective mechanism that ensures that you get what you want. This is why it's, again, a double-edged sword, because it's given you success. It's got you places that you thought you wouldn't get yeah. to otherwise. But it's it's costing you an arm and a leg in the process. It's, it's very highly associated with exhaustion, fatigue, burnout. Yeah. Um, but it's also then opens up the all the different kind of mental health difficulties that can come associated with perfectionism, which is where I go when I work with it in therapy and not where I go when I work with it in coaching. But perfectionism is an umbrella that holds space for anxiety, depression, OCD, um, stress. Um, and then you have everything that's also somatically associated, like everything from IBS to acne um, to pelvic floor uh, dysfunction. It's just so much that sits under this umbrella term. And that's why I love it. That's why I want to work with it, because it's, it's deeply misunderstood as yeah. the thing you say in your job interview that I'm a bit of a perfectionist, as if that's going to yeah. serve you really well. And in the public healthcare sector, it is certainly praised. Is you know, once yeah. um, you know, one of my guests on the podcast once said, um, perfectionism is the only addiction you get praised for. And it kind of makes sense. Um, yeah. that's certainly what led to my episodes of, of burnout in the NHS that I was going above and beyond with everything being sort of the quote-unquote good girl you know I was really stuck in the good girl conditioning you know I need I need to be good at everything and I was being you know people were saying oh Michaela doesn't need any management she manages herself she doesn't yeah. she doesn't ever be needing to be told um, to work harder so I think you'd have to really sort of think about how you tap into the good traits of conscientiousness and being ambitious, hardworking, yeah. but letting those serve you rather than them actually burying you. Yeah. I think, you know, when we think from a CFT perspective, thinking about threat-based drive, is it mm -hmm. all from coming from this place of fear and threat? Um, yeah. Or like you say, is it something you can embrace in terms of this is actually something I want to achieve because it fits with my values, it brings yeah. me a sense of joy i i feel um intellectually stimulated by it it's something i want to be doing or is mm. it i actually must perform because otherwise i might lose my job or they'll think i'm a crappy therapist mm. or whatever other fear kind of shows up absolutely and and i find that that's one of the most potent things i do with high strivers is showing those those three circles model yeah. of paul gilbert's work and, and looking at yeah but and they often say that yeah i've got lots of drive and i'll say well where is it coming from and yeah, where's the it difference between yeah where's it coming from yeah. or who said that you know and, and what happens if you do get to that place I, I really love yeah. the aspect of the of the you know the, the drive system where we look at sort of savoring afterwards yeah. that you know there's a sense of pursuit of of the achievement that is often the focus for the perfectionist and if you think about a professional perfectionistic therapist it might be like I'm doing that next training I'm like okay I've got the next qualification how good do you feel about it afterwards and that's like then yeah. you go into next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next yeah. thing. And savoring, it's obviously a beautiful mindfulness skill, but it, I, I often use that with um, with perfectionistic people because there's no pleasure, there's no reward, there's no sense yeah. of vitality, there's no joy, and it becomes very hollow and empty. So sometimes you can yeah. actually see that when they think that they've got a really big drive system, they've got a really small one, actually, and they've got a really big threat system. So they might think yeah. that, well, I've, I achieve lots of things. But there's yeah. no joy, there's no reward. So that's often yeah. where I, I do my work around play as well, sort of finding yeah. more joy and being a bit more, I don't know, in the moment with it and savoring an achievement and celebrating your wicked wins before you go into the next thing. Um, yeah. I often say that celebrating your successes without the second guesses, 
I guess often yeah. we can get that afterwards, like maybe that wasn't very good. If I did that, yeah. anyone could do that. Well, you've got a doctorate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so do the other 40 people in my cohort. And then you sort yeah. of diminish your, your qualifications yeah. and your achievements. Yeah, it's certainly a time for the self-critic to uh, raise its head, isn't it, at the end of, a, mm-hmm. of an achievement. And I think you're right. People don't often stop even to reflect, even if it's coming from a place of values and vitality. I just don't think it's really encouraged that we stop and reflect, particularly as women. Mm -hmm. reflect and celebrate our achievements Mm -hmm. and actually be really intentional about, well, I've done this now and I'm going to celebrate it and give it some space before I move on to the next thing. Mm, Absolutely. And then allowing yourself to be proud. I think pride is a a challenging emotion for a lot of us because we can feel that that's tapping into sort of being boastful, uh, being too big for your boots. It triggers both difficult thoughts and feelings showing up for that. Uh, and yeah. you know I often talk to people who are very bright very like I said high achieving uh, but I see that in the couples as well that you know they are both burning bright uh, in a one way or another but then they are doing it to the point where they're burning out um, yeah. and it's, it's it's a very tricky sort of fine balancing act of tapping into utilizing your potential and living a life yeah. that feels really full uh, and very sort of I guess um, yeah colorful it's almost like there's there's, there's lots of things shining and radiating out from you and this sounds very metaphorical but that's sort of the feeling I get when I work with both individuals who are high striving and when I see them in the the couple's relationship they have a need to 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 burn bright to shine bright and when you dull that light um they feel unsatisfied in life they still feel you know marital satisfaction goes down because it's like I'm not happy in myself I'm not content I'm not fulfilled so then my relationship will struggle too yeah and I think we always saying just before we hit record that whilst a lot of this is around couples, this also applies to friendships as well, doesn't it? I mean, mm. this, this same stuff can impact on any of the relationships that we have in our lives as well. So mm. you, you've touched on compassion. We've, we've started sort of talking about that. You're a businesswoman. You have a young family and no doubt many other roles, as we all do in our lives. So how has compassion helped you both professionally and personally? I know I've spoken a lot about my experience with it and how helpful it's been. Mm. How has mm-hmm. um, how has that been helpful for you? Mm, it's been hugely helpful, I would say life-changing, um, yeah. because in, in Sweden, as uh, a trainee psychologist, you have to have 50 hours of therapy. So I've already had um, psychodynamic therapy and CBT therapy uh, for myself um, as part of the training. But and I'm sure I've had more therapy than anyone who actually comes to my way, to be honest. Um, but I found that much like we know the research around self-criticism and shame not being fully actually tapped into when you work with CBT. And don't get me wrong, I'm a CBT therapist as well as an ACT therapist, as a CBT therapist, as a behavioral couples therapist, you know, much like the other high striving people, I collect all the qualifications, don't I? But I found <laughs> that coming <laughs> coming into compassion focused therapy or compassion and mind training it felt like <clears throat> felt like coming home it felt like there was finally a place where I can understand without having to question everything you don't have to find the evidence for and against the thought yeah. you just have to go like well no wonder you feel that way no wonder yeah. that thought shows up and soothing and um comforting and actually in one, some ways loving my inner critic has opened a lot more doors for me so that I can kind of get the balancing act right between the burn bright and the burnout. Um, So now I feel like I am successful in a way that I can really savor. I can really enjoy Um, the things I've done over the last three years. I feel immensely proud of uh, in a way that I didn't um, 10 years ago. Uh, So I think coming into compassion practice in so many different ways, I've even gone on, you know, retreats in Thailand with Chris Irons I've gone to compassionate mind training courses I've had yeah just so many different ways that I've thought about it and practiced it and I really resonated what you and Mary Welford were talking about in a previous episode around the community of being with other people who are non-judgmental and say that makes sense so I find that compassion has taught me to navigate my relationships better so that I moved away from relationships which were toxic for me uh, and not yes. just couples relationships, but 
tuning into like-minded people who actually continue to feed my new belief that I am worthwhile, that I am lovable, that I am good enough. When I'm with people who feed that, even if I drift away from practices like the stuff we do, it doesn't matter because I know that I am enough simply by being in their presence. Yeah, that's beautiful. It makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? I mean, I've spoken many times on the difference it's made in my life. And in so many ways, I mean, we could we could talk all, oh, it's morning for you, but evening for me. We could talk for, for hours um, about the sort of benefits of that. Um, you, you touched on compassionate mind training. How do you think that can assist us in all our relationships we have in our lives? Mm. Including that one we have with ourselves, that the longest relationship we'll ever have, the one with ourselves. Yes. It's a very long, complicated one, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because you can't get away from yourself. Wherever, yeah. wherever you go, there you are. Uh, yeah. And I find that was probably one of my biggest epiphanies uh, when it came to how I act in my intimate relationships. Is actually, it's me. I can work on me. Uh, you can't yeah. make your partner change. You know, even if you go to couples therapy, you can't make them change. Uh, you yeah. can only work on you and hope that that has a positive ripple effect or creating a more of a compassionate climate in your in your um relationship so that they will want to change too but you can't make anyone else change so you can work inwards so I found it really fascinating to look at the three flows of compassion when I worked with couples Uh, and you know coming from a dinner conversation with Paul Gilbert many years ago I realized actually this has not been tapped into enough and I want to explore this so yeah Obviously, it makes sense that in a relationship, you would benefit from compassion flowing out to your partner. I think most people would realize that that it's being kind, caring, making space, being patient, listening, all of these things, being kind of caring for them outwards. But it's also about the the other two aspects of compassion. It's not just a caring commitment. It's also the clarity and the, the wisdom, the insight, understanding yourself understanding your triggers, understanding how your past history has shaped you up to this point, um, the ghost in the machine, if you may, that you take with you into this current relationship and doing the same for your partner. So understanding yourself and understanding them. Uh, and I was once asked on in a bus, um, uh, on a bus on, a, on the way to a compassion retreat in Thailand, I was really sleep deprived and really jet lagged. And I was asked by a fellow psychologist. So, you know, you know what's the trick to it then like what's the not like what is the meaning of love but how do you have good relationships and I was so tired and what came out of my mouth was well basically if you can own your own shit you can tolerate theirs you've got a pretty good start and I think that is is actually more profound than I intended it to be because if you're able to be with yourself and tolerate all that you are and and understand that and accept that and work on that and then doing the same with your partner's stuff then you do have a pretty good start for a lasting connection. So that yeah. takes courage, I think. It's not yeah. just a sort of caring commitment. It's also the courage to say no at times, to move away from partners who are treating you badly or stand up for yourself. The fierceness, the fierce self-compassion, I think is crucial in, in relationships as well. So I've kind of danced around a little bit back and forth with compassion for myself because I didn't sleep well last night. I've got a baby. But I wanted to come back to the three flows of compassion there as well, because it's not just the flowing outwards. It's not just the compassion for yourself in that lifelong relationship you have have with yourself, but the middle flow there as well, the receiving compassion flowing in, is the one that I was most fascinated by when I worked with couples, because there are so many blocks there, especially Mm -hmm. for high-striving, busy people who feel maybe kind of hooked on this idea that I don't deserve love, care, and yeah. attention. Uh, it yeah, can be really absolutely. hard to to appreciate and receive that coming in. And then you might feel like, I, you know, nobody listens to me. I'm never cared for. And you might have just kind of put up a big block there. So yeah. all the three uh, flows of compassion, as well as thinking about the sort of the, the clarity, the courage, and the caring commitment. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, you know, the flow in, the the compassion from others I think I I often hear people say our self-compassion is the hardest and Mm -hmm. in my own experience and experience of talking with other people and working with other people I think the compassion from others can be the really really tricky one 
and it does yeah. get seem to get overlooked we, we talk about obviously you know compassion out can be a lot easier for most people um we can build that self-compassion which can be very tricky to do and then the flows the flow from others can be the one that is kind of left on the table mm. so I totally I'm agree it's, it's one of those I, things I would, that's really hard yeah I um I another interview I did with uh, Sarah Reese recently where we talked about this same thing you know mm. it can be so surprising for people of how difficult that is to actually receive compassion from other people especially when you are a caring professional because that's yeah. not what you do day to day you are yeah. you are compassion flowing out you don't yeah. you don't receive i mean occasionally your your clients or your patient or your service user might say something kind to you and you might go oh thank you but it's not supposed to be compassion flowing in it's it's yeah. not supposed to be about you in that moment and that is that self-sacrifice or selflessness, I think, um, element that shows up that actually I, I don't know how to do this. It's a, it's a kind of yeah. a foreign language, um, especially yeah. if we think about the trajectory that people have had into becoming a caring professional. There's yeah. a lot of, obviously a lot of, I don't know, um, fears and beliefs and, and lived experiences that might have made people choose that career path. So I yeah. think if anyone is listening and, and you're quite high striving and high achieving and you also feel that it's hard for you to accept help in your relationships, I would say that, that look at that, look at those blocks, look yeah. at easing those fears. What, what, is, what is showing up for you when someone yeah. asks, do you want a cup of tea? And you're like, no, 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 no it's fine. I'll grab myself one later. You know, we don't have to dive into the deep end. We can just go, actually, oh, yes, please. That would be lovely. Thank you. Yeah. You know, actually just yeah. accepting a very small act of kindness day to day and practicing there, taking compassionate action, not just being kind to yourself, saying, oh, I'll take a break and go make myself a cup of tea. That's an act of self-compassion. How lovely. But actually allowing other people to care for yeah. you is really hard. It triggers a lot of caring professionals. Yeah. And I think as well, being mindful of any judgment we think is going to come from others. What will other people think if I actually start putting myself first in this situation? Mm. Because we, like you say, we we are the give compassion out people, aren't we? You know, this is mm -hmm. our job. And yet it's so important. I mean, I really believe, you know, we can care for others best when we care for ourselves first. Yes. You know, we have to take care of ourselves um, regardless of what work we're doing or what yeah, situation the, uh... we're in. Hence the self care club thing on your on your top there is sort of we yes. need to remind ourselves that actually it's really important that you know it's about capacity again. I have much yeah. better capacity and bandwidth to show yeah. up as the therapist, the friend, the partner, the mother I want to be when I have yeah. when I've topped myself up when I've looked after myself. And you kind yeah. of mentioned that earlier. You know, being a businesswoman and young children. It's even more important then. I find that yeah. compassion-focused therapy and compassionate mind training has helped me not only with the down-regulating, you know, sort of calming my nervous system, but also yeah. with the up-regulating. I find that that yeah. is sometimes missed when we think about compassion-focused work, that we think it's going to just be yeah. the nicey-nice and the fluffy, but actually it up-regulates me as well so I can get shit done. Um, yeah. Because sometimes it's about having the courage to do something that's really difficult and challenging. And being a business yeah. owner, I constantly have to do that. I have to make CEO decisions. I have to tell my team yeah. what to do. Um, I have to decide, do I pivot into this? Um, so actually finding the courage to take action, um, yeah. I find it's, it's really helpful as well coming from, from CFT. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and we've sort of touched on this already, but, you know, taking care of ourselves in all different domains in life isn't the easiest thing even when we know what we should do even when like me you wear a sweatshirt that tells you eat hydrate exercise sleep <laughs> my little <laughs> jumper reminder but we we know what is helpful we know the things that would be good for us to be doing and we know it's not easy to do that so what do you find are your biggest challenges in terms of taking care of yourself and what do you find most helpful in trying to navigate that? Mm, it's definitely when I make self-care or self-compassion practice perfectionistic. Uh, and I'll give you an example so it doesn't become lofty. You know, the, the Headspace app, they have a, yeah. they've gamified it uh, with a run streak. 
And uh, so that where every single day you meditate in a row, you get a run streak. Right. And I realized this, you know, years and years ago when I first started using it, that I was really triggered by when my run streak was broken. And then I would drift away from the app for a long time. And I'm like, oh, no. And, and yeah. this is sort of watching yourself from the outside. It's obviously a, a lovely skill that we have as therapists. We have to just kind of do parallel processing, processing ourselves as, at the same time as we process uh, the client or, or you know, human in front of us. So yeah. I can sort of watch myself from the outside and go, oh, Michaela, that's, it's not so necessarily so helpful for you to be bothered by the perfectionistic kind of like I've broken my run streak, the all or nothing pattern that shows up for me. So I find that I have to find practices that I can allow to be imperfect. Um, yeah. my, my perfect self-care doesn't exist because I am a mother of two young children. So if I was going to do self-care perfectly, I would floss twice a day. You know, I would eat only nutritious foods. I would start my day with compassion under the duvet every single day, which I did this morning, but it's not always possible. I would go for lovely walks. I would move my body every day. I would do the stuff that's on your sweatshirt, right? But when we do it perfectly, it's almost like the underpinning motivation has then changed from a caring, kind motivation to a threat-driven one again. Uh, So I often talk about that, you know, both with couples and individuals and therapists, that actually you have to look at the motivation. You know, if there is a passionate unkindness behind these choices, it's no longer self-care, it's no longer self-compassion. So for me, what's been most helpful is finding little sort of small shifts or in the words of James Clear, atomic habits, like the small shifts I can make that have the biggest impact. So a one minute breathing, you know, literally just standing over the cot, deep breathing into my belly and saying, this is really hard. And that is a practice I can take with me everywhere. It doesn't have to be, you know, a half an hour seated meditation. It can just be, this is really hard. And what's going to be helpful? I love those yeah. words from Russell Cole. So what's going to be helpful rather than harmful yeah. for me to do right now? And yeah. for me, that's been a much more tangible, accessible practice of compassion. And I kind of came into that with the birth of my first child when it was no longer possible for me to take myself off to retreat for the weekend because that's lovely. But I actually had to do something that was you know, hitting home in my reality then sitting with a screaming, poorly child on my chest and go, I can just breathe through this. This is really hard. Yeah, yeah. I think one of my favourite is the sort of hand on heart, Mm. just slowing it down like that as a quick hack during the day. Yeah. Um, Like you say, it's finding, isn't it, the the small things we can do rather than having to have this thing of like, you know, I need to do my self-care. It's yeah. um, it's on the to-do list. It's a yet another thing <laughs> that I might not achieve. It's like yeah. just finding things. How can I use my breath? How can I just be aware? How can I say yeah. something kind to myself at a time when I might be struggling with something? And not letting it be dogmatic. I mean, I am a yeah. functional behaviorist in, in the in through and through. That's how I trained in Sweden. We were much more behavioral than than CBT in the UK is much more cognitive. So I feel like I have a con- contextualism to it. And so, for instance, last night I had really poor sleep and I woke up and obviously we're recording from eight in the morning. And then you're thinking, what is the self-compassionate choice here? Is it to send you a message and and kind of uh, ask for, you know, to rearrange? What's the self-compassionate thing here? Is it to see actually it will be good enough? I can show up and talk to you, have a nurturing conversation that people will take some sort of value out of, even when I'm not showing up as my quote unquote perfect self. Like you're never going to get that sort of perfect score of I've slept enough, I've eaten enough, I've hydrated enough. Because you're human, like you're not going to have that. And especially as a mother of young children, there is very rarely like my idle, compassionate self (laughs) present. And I've learned to cope with that because my first child didn't sleep through the night for four years. And, you know, in that time I wrote a book and, you know, it's okay. Remember most of what I wrote in it, but, you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's okay. And we can't, we have to then look at the function of that. What function would it serve for me to, show up and uh, you know honor our arrangement versus rearranging it and it yeah. can't be that self-care or self-compassion is then always and never like I never get I never should work in the evenings because that's that's you know that's that's not healthy or I should always rearrange after a bad night's sleep 
And that becomes perfectionistic in itself. If we apply our principles around compassion um, in a dogmatic way, I find. Yeah. One of my very favorite sayings is don't should all over yourself. Mm -hmm. I love that one. (laughs) Is when that starts to show up, I should do this, I should do that. So, oh, hang on a minute. And back to that question of what's motivating this? And is it helpful or harmful? Yeah. Yeah. And how can I masturbation? Yeah. 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 So what would one piece of advice be that you would share with our listeners? Gosh, I was thinking about this. I haven't prepared any of this beforehand, as I said to you uh, before we started recording, that I've learned that I show up in my best way when I don't over-prepare. That's that's one one of my tips, maybe. It's actually just allowing yourself to tap into what really matters to you and what version of you you feel comfortable with being as a therapist, as a friend, as a partner. Actually, what do you need to continue to step back into that version of you? Not an ideal, perfect version of you, but a version of you that you feel like, actually, this is where I feel that there's less chafing. I feel like the clothes fit, if you see what I mean, like this. I don't have to be like constantly, it's not quite right, but ah, that feels kind of nice. How do you step into that version of you where it's like, this is probably my most natural, relaxed self. What do you need on a day-to-day basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis? What choices do you need to make? And even if some of them will be hard choices, how can you make sure that you keep coming back to that? When you gently drift away, how can you gently return to that? That probably would be my tip. It's not as sort of clickbaity as I would like to make it, but the world is complex and humans are complex and it's hard to go like here's the one tip that you do yeah just keep tuning into who you actually think that you are that feels most comfortable to you not the person you think you are that like looks really good (laughs) these are the values I think I should have and don't should all of yourself don't get caught up in masturbation but actually yeah how do I keep tuning back into that I know the version of me that I enjoy it's yeah it's often at the end of the day when you know that you sort of like, I've been lit on fire here. I've been passionate. I've loved what I've done in this moment. That yeah. version of me is the same when I go into my role as a mother, my role as a, uh, as a wife, my role as a friend. It's when I know that's kind of coming back to shining bright. I know when I've been shining bright, that's the me I'm most proud of. And that's yeah. the me that often disappears when I am overwhelmed, out of capacity yeah. or burnt out. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So this is a question I ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. If you could meet your 80-year-old self, what do you think your future self would say to you? Mm. Like I said, I didn't prepare the questions. I looked at them again before we started recording and I thought, oh, goodness, this is really deep. I I could go into a therapy mode here and just, it's really deep. But I think she would say two things. One would be about how I approach life in terms of achievements. She probably would say, slow down. You know, you've, you've got this. Slow down. I can see you. You are working so hard towards these things and you will get there. Just slow down, you know, enjoy the ride a bit more. Just, you know, take, down a, take it down to a sustainable pace. And that's probably the, the message that I keep telling myself the most often, that the message I need to hear that I don't always want to listen to. And I think she also would say, um, you are more beautiful than you think you are inside and out. Um, when I get caught up in sort of comparisonitis or not enoughness, all of these things that my yeah. inner critic will say to me, because um, I realized that when I look at pictures from me 10 years ago, I was like, actually, you were, you were a lot more beautiful than you thought you were. Like, all the hangups you had along the right, you, yeah. you, you're fine. You know, and I just wonder when you come to 80 and then you speak to your 38-year-old self, you must think that, well, you're a beautiful, radiant human being and you are enough as you are. Yeah. That's probably what she would say to me. Because I think I think that she would be sort of like a a really kick-ass, strong woman who's done a lot and seen a lot and it's like, yeah, just uh, doesn't suffer fools gladly. That's how I want to be when I'm 80. (laughs) And then looking back with that soft, nurturing wisdom that's sort of having the courage but also the caring commitment and looking back and saying, look, it's okay. You're, you've done enough, you are enough, you have enough. That's, yeah, I think, that's what you beautiful. would say. That's really beautiful. So finally, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch, where can they engage with you and your work? 
And so I'll the put easiest links thing, in the show notes as well. Fab, brilliant. So the easiest thing is my website, thethomasconnection.co.uk. Um, but you can also connect with me on social media sites. So I'm on Instagram under The Thomas Connection. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, basically, if you Google The Thomas Connection, you'll find stuff. You obviously got my book, The Lasting Connection, uh, and my podcast, Pause, Purpose, Play. Um, and that's that's a great way into sort of hearing more about me and my work. And I wanted to also mention that I'm really passionate about working with healthcare professionals and I'm starting my group coaching program which will be specifically also for psychologists and therapists called Burn Bright. So that's coming soon as well. So anyone who wants to just have a chat with me, just go to the website, see what I do there or drop me a message on social media. Fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me after your poor night's sleep and giving so generously of your time and your wisdom. It's been really lovely to chat with you. And, um, thank you for having me. It's been great you. to talk to you and very deep, lovely questions. Lovely. You take care and we'll speak soon. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself, and may you go well and go gently. <laughs>